0: A
1: man was recalling that as a boy he got this sort of surprise to see this little stream running from under his mother's skirt. So, women would cook up
2: little pisseries and they would be like cocoa butter and quinine and they would make little
3: tablets, insert them into the vagina and they would dissolve. I was brought up to never look at men in the eye to make sure that all my clothing was very loose and baggy so that. I didn't attract the attention of a man. It's a woman with a tiny waist. Once they got married,
4: she probably spent the next 10 years having children.
5: First of her two children were born
6: in a tent. Everything that we do, we have more confidence in, more confidence to speak and think and act as we like. The status of women badly wanted raising.
7: I'm so thankful today that as women, we can say what we think. But that hasn't always been the case. While the status of women has been raised, as Helen Wilson, an early leader of the Women's Division of Federated Farmers, states in the 1950s, it doesn't necessarily mean that we don't have anything to fight for now. When women rise up, we are
8: so powerful. <laughs>
7: Hello, I'm Sonia Sly, and this is Beyond Kate, a podcast exploring women's suffrage 125 years after women gained the right to vote in New Zealand. And this time, we're stripping right back to the basics. We're going to get down to the business of the body, exploring issues from sexuality to the way clothing shapes society's view of femininity, and how attitudes about women's bodies have restricted our rights. Across the generations. But before we get down to our birthday suits, it's time to jump in the deep end.
9: Of the pool, that is. I mean, I've just recently been looking at the history of swimming pools in Auckland and it would have been the same everywhere.
7: This is Sandra Coney, who you also heard in the last episode. She's a local body politician, writer and feminist, historian and health campaigner in Auckland.
9: And women had to really, really fight to get an hour in the day when they could go swimming and the men would be kept out. You know, everything for women, every intellectual, every physical freedom, every economic freedom has had to be fought for. They had to fight to get the hour on the beach they could go for a swim because the men were swimming naked. And
7: we can only assume that men got as much time as they wanted outside of that single hour.
9: And then they got a separate pool And now today, obviously, for many years, you've been able to go along and men and women, girls and boys are all swimming together. But that had to be fought for. But at what point were women allowed into pools? Which era is this? This is probably in the 1880s, the first swimming pools, municipal swimming pools.
7: So really society, the entire landscape and infrastructure, the physical infrastructure that makes up New Zealand, is really absolutely male Dominated. They claim the space, have built the space for
9: themselves. New Zealand in the early years of colonisation was disproportionately male. So it wasn't until later that they got a lot of female immigration and they started deliberately bringing women out who would be one, domestic servants, which they didn't want to do, and secondly would marry the surplus male population. And then you get the fact that many of the initial industries in New Zealand, the extractive industries that made New Zealand attractive, like gold mining, like timber milling, whaling, were very physical male-dominated pursuits. And then the men were socialising in these all-male groups and the pubs were places that were totally sort of male-dominated, even though you get the odd, you know, some women running them. And the pubs, as we know, were places where men were spending their wages on drink. If you look at where most early immigration came from the British Isles. Those countries were very male-dominated, but they had the class system. I think the thing in New Zealand that was more freeing and probably enabled women to challenge these things early was the fact that our class system wasn't entrenched and, in fact, people celebrated the egalitarianism of New Zealand. But it still took a long time for things to change –
7: there were, and still are, unspoken rules about how a woman should look and behave, especially in public. And clothing was very important to women in New Zealand society. New Zealanders, you know, right from the beginning wore fashionable dresses. Claire Reno was a senior curator at Te Papa, with specialist interest in New Zealand's fashion history. And we're very attuned to fashion. Yes, New Zealand women were interested in keeping up to date with the latest trends, just as we are today. But while we do that via the internet, they had newspapers and women were hankering for what they had access to back home. Here are some updates from the Christchurch Press in the 1890s. One bodice intended for homewear is of a pale, soft shade of amber colours of black velvet, forming loops on the bust and continuing to the waist. The hair is dressed in girlish fashion, the ends curled at the back. Blouses are a distinct feature this summer and are in many styles, and they are all worn over the skirt. I read this wonderful piece from a diary a while ago of a young
4: woman sending a letter to her sister in Scotland saying, you know, she needed her to send her the best, the most fashionable riding hat because, you know, the last one was very pretty, but it just
7: didn't help her stand out in Dunedin. Amongst all the
4: other girls, people did want to be fashionable. Because this is a
7: time as well where people are establishing class. You want to find the best
4: mate, or yeah. And by that sort of eighteen, you know, eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, there's very much that concept
7: of society. Mm. And clothing has always been an indicator of social cues about class, status, and culture. Heading through the bars of De Papa, one of my favourite places, Claire rolls out a drawer, and inside it is a silk sky blue pinstripe blouse with a matching skirt. Even to my modern eye, this outfit is incredibly stylish and definitely fashionable.
4: I think it's an afternoon dress. It was actually worn for a wedding in 1894, but at that time people often wore their best dress to get married in because they couldn't afford you know, another dress. But it's also very typical of what a well-to-do, upper-middle-class woman would have worn during the afternoon and at home.
7: The top of the blouse has a vanilla-coloured lace with matching cuffs, Ruffles sit across a chest with a vertical row of dainty gold buttons running down the front. I'm amazed how much the colour pops, because this is something you definitely don't get in a black-and-white photograph in a history book. By
4: the 1850s, 1860s, aniline dyes had um, come into play. So while we often think of the Victorians as very dour, by the second half of the 19th century, you know, it was just a riot of colour. What's yeah. aniline? Um, it's a type of synthetic dye. So prior to the 1850s, everything was dyed with natural
7: dyes. Did I mention sleeves? The newest are the mushroom sleeves for evening wear. And there is the still... bow sleeve, which is in fact a puff caught up with. Others stra- again are infinitesimal on the shoulders and wide. But the sleeves are certainly diminishing in size for evening and increasing for day wear.
4: Leg of mutton sleeves, very characteristic of the mid 1890s, so around the suffrage period. And I think they got their to their biggest by 1896. So, so there's like, a
7: medium sized one. <laughs>
4: yeah, you, you sort of would see them gradually getting bigger over the decade. So you have a huge puff sleeve from the shoulder, and then you have very, very narrow down the forearm to the wrist. It's not a hugely full skirt, but it's still an A line. And what that does is it would give the wearer a, a sort of X shape. It was all about defining the, the smallness waist. of the waist.
7: It looks about the size of my five year old's torso. Clearly, none of these women were eating pies back then, or much else by the looks of things. It's a woman with a tiny waist.
4: Once they got married, they probably spent the next 10 years having children,
7: and they may not have actually been able to fit back into this dress. Which, in my mind, is so tragic, that these items were worn and loved, but for such a short time, and that's why this outfit is in immaculate condition. And
4: she would probably have been corseted from quite you know, a young child. Especially if young girls wore, you know, corseted from a very young age, it sort of did inhibit, you know, the growth of your sort of bones or organs.
7: Yikes. Kind of reminds me of how the Chinese bound girls' feet. And all this to attract a mate, conforming to the beauty ideal of the time. Women here were definitely wearing them. We were just a bit more relaxed. So there was a whole thing about tight lacing
4: where you got your waist as tiny as possible, which is really sort of you know, your Kim Kardashians of the time, your sort of upper society. You know, if you look at the sort of working class women, they wore much looser clothes. They probably weren't tightly corseted, but fashionable women often would.
7: But some men were against women putting themselves through that torture. Thankfully, like Donald Maclean, a highly controversial figure in our history, he was critical to the purchase of Māori land, well-connected and educated. He held those traditional Victorian views, but was seemingly progressive. And in a letter to his wife, he wrote... Please, please, please don't go through that fashion of tightening your corsets. Be sensible.
4: So there was a lot of debate about corsets, and particularly at this time. You know, I've just been looking at photographs recently of women trampers in this period. You know, on the glaciers, in their full-length dresses, their big hats, their mantles. They walked up there in those things? Yes, they managed to do an awful lot in these garments.
7: Imagine struggling up a hill with a heavy skirt weighing you down, dragging along the gore, smuddy tracks and foliage. What a mission. Now, women of the time didn't have anywhere near the volume of clothing that we have today. They might own three dresses at the most, and whenever they had a new one, the oldest would become a home dress or something worn in the garden. But moving on, or should I say under to Dunedin and the bowels of Otago Museum where I met up with dress historian Jane Malthus. He gave me the lowdown on what's underneath those skirts
1: back in time. What was the
7: reasoning behind crotchless underwear?
1: It's possibly the other way round. It's just the way it was always done up until that time. Nobody had thought about needing to close the crotch seam. Right. That's why we call underwear still a pair of pants. It was always, originally, two separate leg coverings joined at the waist. It wasn't one garment. These are 1860s ones, and you can see two oh. two separate leg coverings that come up as far as the waist, and then you have a band into which they're gathered, and they tie round the waist. Aha. Uh-huh.
7: So we had a quality where it mattered most, Right. While I still can't see the point of crotchless underpants, apparently they did serve a vital function that made life a lot easier for women and meant that they could...
1: Go to the toilet, being able to pee. Without
7: Mm. having to pull things down. Yeah,
1: was easier, so they could do that standing up. With their heavy layers on, which was super important considering... Women's access to public toilets, in Dunedin in particular, was so much later than men's we wondered about how they coped and one of the ways they coped was that they could actually be discreet under their long skirts because their underwear had no crotch thing.
7: I have to say, this kind of made me angry because although we think that women back then didn't want to engage in public life, part of the constraint was really that we weren't even included in the picture because public toilets only came into being 50 or 60 years after colonial settlement.
1: I think in the early days of uh, European settlement in Dunedin, the problem in relation to urination and defecation in public was seen as a male problem. When gold was discovered, there was a huge influx of um, particularly males heading through Dunedin to the gold fields. Some of them behaved reasonably outrageously, but all of them, because there were no public toilets or few public toilets, Urinated and defecated in public, as it were, behind flax bushes or in places like that. There were descriptions about flax bushes being, um, you know, like excavations, (laughs) like middens almost. Midden. Noun. A dunghill or refuse heap. Uh, With all these piles of um, rotting material around them. And you can
7: only imagine in the heat of summer what that must be like. Or even the sight of a man crouching down in the bushes doing his business maybe that was also a deterrent for women going into towns as well but all I could think is that New Zealand must have been a very smelly place at the time
1: maybe but there weren't as many people as there are now that's the other thing you know at the height of the gold rush the Dunedin's population was 17,000 or something so we're not talking huge numbers of people like we are now but yes definitely there were smells I mean the way that cities dealt with sewage of any kind. That had to be developed as the towns grew. And the other reason
7: toilets weren't rolled out any sooner for women was because it appeared women didn't need them. You know, because we're different.
1: They were seen as more in control of their own bodies, which when we later talked to women about how they did that, they basically said, well, if we went in public, we just didn't drink very much before we went. But if caught short, a woman's got to do
7: what a woman's got to do. And this next part paints quite a picture.
1: A man was recalling that as a boy he got this sort of surprise to see this little um, stream running from under his mother's skirt, for example, and he didn't really understand at the time what that was about. And for a
7: moment, I imagine myself in one of those huge skirts, But I'm confused. Do I lift it up a little so that my skirt never touches the ground? Or do I stand in a squat-like position or continue going about my business with no expression on my face, just as the boy's mother did, pretending that nothing's happening? It's not pretty. Don't try this at home, ladies. But there was one saving grace.
1: Women could use so-called private facilities in other people's backyards so all toilets in the 19th century were outside buildings. They were in the corner of a backyard, they were a long drop style earth closet. They were relatively accessible by people passing through public spaces.
7: Thank God for the long drop. Now these were the conditions that folks just had to get used to when they came to New Zealand but there were some treasures that women brought with them too.
5: When she first left Ireland she went to get um, this beautiful dress that she was going to be travelling in and she found this little old lady who was weaving. This is Margaret Stott and she's talking about her great-great-grandmother Margaret Rowan. She had a little hand loom and she admired her work and she said that is so pretty and so the lady gave her a little floral ditty bag they called them, little drawstring bag. The old lady then lifted up her many petticoats, found a farthing, popped it in the ditty bag, and said, there's a farthing for you, Margaret Rowan. You're travelling off to the other side of the world. Never take it out except to change it for more money. Always add to your fortune, and never let the gentleman find out about it. Margaret left a life in Ireland, leaving behind days of poverty and famine. It was a million and a half people, I think, emigrated out of the country. And a million died, so it was more like refugees than at at that time when James Whelan left. That was her future husband. One of the last things her dad ever said to her was, hold your head up high. You're a, a Rowan. You should always be proud of being Irish. We're a beaten nation. And so he gave her good advice on being strong. You see, Margaret was meeting up with her brothers who had already arrived on the
7: goldfields of Australia. Her job was to look after their tent and probably do their laundry too. But on arrival, she met up with her childhood sweetheart, James Whelan. They married and soon moved to the goldfields in New Zealand. But living on a dirt floor
5: in a canvas tent hardly sounds like the good life. They are very basic, aren't they? Just up on the hillside and the men folk will be down here digging down for gold. first of her two children were born in a tent. Now, for anyone who's ever given birth, even
7: in the comfort of a bed, in a hospital or at home, let alone a damp canvas tent, you can only imagine how horrendously uncomfortable it would have been, giving birth there. The things that women had to go through. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I'm a bit dumbstruck. Me too. Were they able to have enough money
5: to be able to actually build a house. and When their third child was born in a little house, they walked over the hill to a settlement that was called Weatherstons, and they built this um, little house. The brother and the sister-in-law had done the same thing. They also had nine children, so they were all quite a close family, and her brothers and so forth were living in that area as well.
7: Which, I guess, is how communities started forming too.
5: First of all, they had five girls and the other three were born in this little little cottage that they'd built in Weatherstons. They eventually had a, a, a stove of some sort inside, but they still did all the baking outside. But life was pretty basic and back then you just use what you had to hand. Hint, hold your nose. Girls, when they got old enough, would be sent out into the fields to collect the fuel and the fuel would be dried cow pats. So I don't know whether you'd be much for sending your daughter out or your daughter would be keen on going out to collect <laughs> Or to eat the food.
7: I, I wouldn't be
5: keen to do that. Let alone seen Well, yes, yeah, so I probably would prefer to send someone else to do it. But anyway, that's what they used for the fuel, and they, and they did all their baking. Probably tinging the flavour of the food, mm. wouldn't you think? Yeah, you imagine so, wouldn't oh you? But what
7: I'm curious about is what Margaret wanted
5: for herself. I expect, like most women in those days, they wanted their children to be safe, to be happy and to prosper. You had to look after your husband in those days. He's kind of your path to survival. Yes, he is, yes. When they moved into Dunedin, they moved into a a double-storey house, but they just had the bottom, and she found out that there was gambling going on upstairs, and she was very, very angry about that because most likely with gambling came the drinking. And as we explored in the previous episodes, alcohol affected the lives of women back then. She was very kind, but I don't think she could be pushed around too much. I think she was strong in her own right, because she learnt how to be strong. But nevertheless, Margaret lived as many women did,
7: going about her day-to-day life and getting on with it. And when you have nine kids, what choice do you really have? Speaking of large families, women were doing their bit, not just for themselves, but... Producing enough children for the nation, because the New Zealand
2: population has never been large, so there was always that absolute fear that if you had readily available contraception, that uh, it was like race suicide. Stephanie Gibson is a curator at Te Papa. There was a lot of anxiety around that, particularly in the early 20th century, and it's in the newspapers. You know, women should be having children. They should be contributing the next generation oh. to the country.
7: That's such a heavy load to bear, especially considering that some of us, at least, have the opportunity to make those decisions today about how many kids we want to have. But sticking with the past, even talking about contraception was a no-go zone. There were laws
2: against talking about contraception. The word itself was considered obscene. Doctors didn't talk about it or they didn't know anything about it. Women might have passed down secrets from grandmothers to mothers to daughters about how to prevent pregnancy, but it wasn't publicly available knowledge. So I think any class of woman would have tried anything she could to control her family size.
7: I can't imagine how hard it was to have a truckload of children when today it's a struggle to balance life with just one. And imagine if you weren't naturally maternal, how hard life would be. As for women having control over their own bodies, remember that women were chattels and had to submit themselves to their husbands whenever their man desired. You know, why is it placed back on women? It was a very
2: moral issue. Uh, Women were meant to be sexually modest, meant to be virgins before marriage. There was a lot of societal pressures on women. Having an illegitimate child before marriage was... Just a, a complete disaster. So many children were given up for adoption in this country. So before barrier methods, we had condoms. Condoms have a very long history. Men didn't like to wear them. They were thick and a little bit baggy. So women would uh, cook up little pessaries and they
7: would be like cocoa butter and quinine uh, mixtures. An alkaloid from the bark of the cinchona tree. And it's been used as an anti-malarial drug sort of
2: 19th century, early 20th, and they would make little tablets, uh, insert them into the vagina, and they would dissolve. So you get this spermicidal uh, barrier just before sex. But it's not 100% safe. Which meant some women were forced to take drastic and dangerous measures. So, you know, in the 19th century, women would have had still been having uh, risky abortions from people that would have had home remedies to bring on an abortion. So it could be douching with hot soapy water. There were various
7: plant extracts that people might use. So none of the kind of, I don't even know if coat hangers existed then, but you know... Yeah, there's that image of the coat hanger. So people would use
2: sharp objects to try and encourage a miscarriage. People use all sorts of different methods, a lot of them very dangerous, because there was no easy, legal, medical way to do it in the 19th century. Mm. Women took terrible
7: risks, and, and many women died as a result. From dangerous abortions to the one thing women can't control, menstruation.
10: There is some evidence that fertility was considered differently. Menstruating might be seen as a sign that you were fertile. Barbara Brooks,
7: Professor of History at Otago University.
10: There's an example I've used from Britain where a woman bleeds onto the floor in a factory and that's seen to be a sign that she's fertile, so that's OK. I mean, I don't have any evidence for that in New Zealand, but I think the the stigma around menstruation is partly related to attitudes to fertility.
7: When women were menstruating and they were in, if they were in the workforce, I mean, how prohibitive was it for them you know, to be out at work and maybe not have access to facilities and that kind of thing.
10: For the majority of married women, they would probably rarely menstruate because they had so many children and they would breastfeed them that they would inhibit menstruation through lactation.
7: And back then, girls were getting their first period as late as 17, whereas today, it can be as young as 9 or 10.
10: So if you're doing heavy labouring work and you have a low body weight, you're unlikely to menstruate early. So there might not be that long a period in the workforce when you're actually menstruating. But Barbara says the real problem starts
7: in the 20th century, when girls stayed at high school longer. Schools didn't have facilities, so girls would have to carry their rags around in paper bags, which is awkward and probably embarrassing, It would be the equivalent today of taking a whole packet of sanitary pads to the bathroom in front of all of your workmates. Apparently there were commercial products available at the time, but they were expensive and a lot of families just couldn't afford them. So did periods and access to toilets stop women from being actively engaged in public life or was it a drop-tools-and-sit-at-home situation? Back to Jane Malthus.
1: Up until recently I would have said that did confine them to the home, but I've just read parts of the diary of a woman called Catherine Fulton. She lives out on the Tyree. She goes into Dunedin, she takes a horse and cart, or she gets a ride with somebody, or she's visiting her parents or her family, you know, her sisters. I was amazed, actually, at how much she got around.
7: But did it mention yeah. when she was menstruating? No. no, no, no. I mean, that's
1: part of the problem for studying any of this is that they certainly didn't write about going to the toilet, or and they didn't really write about menstruation either. Even newspapers wouldn't really advertise any of those things. Issues to do with privacy, what privacy means, have changed over the 19th and 20th centuries
7: too. Today we're more private about some things, but we're more open about others. We can talk about periods, but still discreetly tuck tampons into our sleeves or pockets, and this is where I want to start moving forward, because it's important to look at what we're faced with today. I know. I love all of the photos here. So the one I visited one Dame Margaret Sparrow. You dame
11: uh, is, that, is that what
7: it's called? Just at the back here? Yes. Okay. yes. What was that moment like for you?
6: Pretty amazing, because you're sitting in a room with all these other people who have done the most fantastic things, and you think, gosh, do I really deserve this? When you, when you see so many other people who have done so many wonderful things. A
7: lifetime worth of achievements and awards line her living room wall beside the fireplace. And on the mantelpiece, there are accompanying photographs that mark those important moments, like when she received her MBE for playing a major role in revolutionising sexual and reproductive health for women in this country. But she's incredibly humble. Dame Margaret has pushed for reform in women's sexual health in part because she knew as a young woman that having access to contraception and abortion would enable her to have more choice. But it wasn't without putting her own body on the line. She was a guinea pig for the first contraceptive pill and even terminated her own pregnancy. This was before abortion became legal in the late 70s. There
6: weren't any pregnancy tests in 1956 either, but there was a, a very famous chemist and knew about and so we wrote away and got this mixture and it came in a a brown paper packet and uh, I took two tablespoonfuls three times a day had no idea what I was taking and I was fortunate and I was early in pregnancy had a miscarriage or an abortion
7: which was basically like a heavy period but I was keen to find out where Dame Margaret sees things for women today
6: now We expect to have more autonomy over the things that we do, but we're a long way from having that. You
7: think so? Yes. Why is that?
6: Well, even just our our laws, particularly regarding um, abortion, women are not permitted to make that decision themselves. It has to be made by two special doctors called Certifying Consultants. Um, I think that there's been a very strong women's health movement in in New Zealand that has been necessary because unless women have protested very often, um, the medical profession has have, has ignored. Their needs and their and their problems. I mean, there was a great need for better abortion services, but the medical profession didn't see that. It was actually um, activist women who who really changed that.
7: What is the difference between what it meant to be a feminist in the 1960s compared to what it is to be a feminist now? And do you feel like women are still fighting the same cause, or has it just kind of shifted direction a little bit? I,
6: I think feminism really changed my life in the uh, early 1970s. It really changed the way I thought about um, things, and I owe that to feminism, some of the early early feminists' uh, still my heroines.
7: (laughs) In terms of women's sexual health today, where do you think some of the flaws are?
6: The most recent example, I think, is not one relating to contraception, uh, but it's certainly a women's health problem, and that's the uh, problem relating to the mesh that was used for pelvic prolapse and urinary incontinence. Uh, which does affect many women after after childbirth, and I think that it was only due to women highlighting the complications um, that were occurring that really pushed the medical profession and the ministry of health, which really has a responsibility to oversee uh, health and safety. Um, but it was the, it was the women who really um, pushed for change in that in that direction.
7: And as we've seen through history, pushing for change has come in part through speaking out when women have something to say.
3: Omegle is a website where you can chat to strangers either through webcam or by messaging, like typing. So I was on Omegle, and it's amazing how many dicks there are. (laughs) I was chatting to one guy, and he asked me to rate his dick. I was like
7: three Angela Dravid lives in Auckland she's a comedian and TV personality and she's not afraid to speak up about dicks and sex it's a platform to have a say but one which comes from a place of tension you see Angela is of Indian and Samoan descent and when she was growing up she was taught that her body was to be protected at all costs but she paid a price At 18, she married a man she met online, he was more than twice her age. She flew to the UK to be with him, wide-eyed and in love, leaving her strict upbringing and family behind. And she didn't have any other friends or support there, other than her husband. She began feeling disempowered, disillusioned with this new life, so that feeling of loneliness eventually bubbled into a fury that she couldn't contain. That's when she did the unthinkable. She ended up in prison for attacking her now ex-husband.
3: There's such different power dynamics between an 18-year-old and a 47-year-old, and our cultures were different as well. He's English, I'm mixed-race, but I'm also a New Zealander, but I come from families which are very protective about their daughters.
7: She was young, vulnerable. You could easily argue that she had been manipulated, but despite the situation, her family never came to her aid.
3: Like I wasn't considered like an honourable kid because I disobeyed my family by running away. So it kind of felt like I'd sacrificed so much more. So I always felt resentful.
7: Angela's views about her body are deeply ingrained and her cultural upbringing has fed into her sense of what it means to be a woman.
3: As a girl, I was brought up to never look at men in the eye, to make sure that all my clothing was very loose and baggy so that I didn't attract the attention of a man if I was, like, a teenager or growing up or something. I have to constantly think about the world around me that I don't think about myself as a real person. I just make sure that I'm not tempting other men, which I sort of feel and like you is still a think terrible, about that. Yeah, it's a terrible existence to live if you're constantly thinking, am I sending wrong messages? Because when those things happen, you start to blame yourself that you somehow let the ball go, like... Like, it's suddenly your fault because you sent the wrong messages or you wore clothes that were too tight. But you can't control what someone else is thinking. Like, if they are that way inclined, that is on them. It's nothing to do with the person you are. Because also that limits
7: your ability to surely be and express yourself through what you wear, right? Yes. And did you ever feel the limitations Oh,
3: that? definitely. And I felt it between the difference between as a as a person of colour and my Western friends. Western friends were able to wear shorts, uh, like, jean shorts. I was never allowed to wear shorts. Uh, Ever? Yeah. Even cause in was summer? Ex- yeah, because I was exposing my legs. I couldn't wear, like, singlets or anything because I had bust. I just suddenly felt self-conscious about anything I wore, that um, I just wore baggy T-shirts and baggy pants. Like, you just don't take care of your appearance because you don't want to attract attention. You know,
7: there are different degrees to which women feel like this on a daily basis. Women internalise this blame. All of it. In Angela's case, no one asked why she was pushed to the point where she unleashed her rage. She did a bad thing. Nothing happened to her ex-husband, a man who was old enough to be her father. And Angela was a young girl who didn't know any better, running away from a restrictive upbringing.
3: I think coming from quite overprotective families, it meant that I lashed out. It's the same thing with um, kids who fall over and are allowed to fall over, tend to behave better than children who are probably coddled quite a bit because they they kind of understand, oh, I'm going to hurt myself. They know what hurt is, so they behave responsibly. Whereas if you're kind of coddled, that kid's going to run away straight into like a pool or something, without realising the consequences just because it hasn't had those experiences yet.
7: Angela's definitely not a victim. She's open, disarmingly candid and warm. She says she doesn't know much about feminism, but calls herself a feminist insofar as she doesn't want anyone to live the life that she did, trapped in a body, a shell, that she couldn't embrace.
3: All of that has contributed to the person that I am today. It's, It's part of the reason why I had to do stand-up to overcome shyness. And Then he asked me if i like to suck dick. I was like, I don't know, is dick halal? (laughs) Because confidence was seen as being promiscuous. Because you're a girl. Just because I'm a girl. Mm. I don't think it's the same for men. If men are confident, they're not considered promiscuous or anything. They're just considered confident person with a good personality good sense of humor but for a woman it's considered flirting or crossing boundaries. I don't want my kids growing up thinking about that all the time because it also affects your success as well. You don't aim high if you're also constantly aware of how others perceive you. I think success is something that you do because you feel you can do it But as a woman, I'm constantly thinking about my surrounding, that I often put other people's needs first rather than my own. I think
7: it happens so often. Women today are faced with a multitude of demands. There's the pressure to succeed, to be thin, attractive, to find the perfect husband, to have a post-baby body that bounces back to yummy mummy perfection. It all comes at a cost to our sense of self-worth, and to how we live in our own skin. I've
12: got got an honours degree, um, and I've won a scholarship, which I've deferred for a year, but this is just the most lucrative of my jobs.
7: This is Zelda. We've altered her voice to protect her identity. She's attractive, intelligent, and creative. She isn't shy about calling herself a feminist. She also works part-time in the sex industry.
12: It was a little bit of a mixed... Um, kind of bag of decisions. So I lost my virginity very late. I'm almost 25 now and I lost it about a week before my 21st birthday.
7: Zelda comes from a family of strict Protestants and to put that into perspective, her life was so sheltered that she wasn't even allowed to watch the hugely popular 90s TV series Friends.
12: Yeah, I didn't masturbate, didn't kiss anyone, didn't hold hands with anyone until I was, yeah, 21, And so I I felt like I lacked a lot of experience and didn't have very much autonomy over my body. And because I was so naive, like I didn't even know men got erections, my first couple of relationships, it was all on someone else's terms and I got taken advantage of.
7: And Zelda says sex work empowered her. She now
12: sees her body in a totally different light. So I kind of wanted to have some, gain some experience um, and reclaim sex and reclaim agency and sex a little bit.
7: But that also meant pushing through those age-old stereotypes.
12: I consider myself a feminist and someone who really supports women's rights, but I had a bit of a an attitude towards people in the sex industry. You know, you only see negative representations either as dead bodies in movies or as the joke in a film or, or a main character who's like being mistaken for a sex worker and that being a joke. I always saw sex workers as definitely vulnerable and disempowered.
13: I mean, if you talk to a whole bunch of 19-year-old girls, you'll probably find that most, you know, like, probably having sex, you know, maybe sleeping around, maybe with one partner, maybe with multiple. This
7: is Franco. Again, we've disguised your voice to protect your identity.
13: The only difference was that, you know, I was doing it in an environment where I always had protection. I had the law on my side. I didn't have someone able to manipulate me or cause me problems. I, you know, and I got paid, which was just a fantastic bonus. I mean, before I started doing sex work, I was having probably actually even you know maybe even more sex and it was a lot less responsible it's interesting that people want to think about you know a young woman doing sex work but people don't want to think about societal role in in a woman being promiscuous at that age people will have a lot to say about the way that i was having sex for money but no one would have anything to say about the way i was treating myself and letting men treat me for free I have been sexually assaulted in my life, I've been sexually harassed, I have uh, slept with people I wish I hadn't, and none of those were ever as part of sex work. When I have worked in hospitality, I've I've been sexually assaulted at work on three occasions, bartending and as a glassy, men just grabbing my ass.
10: Hey girl, wanna come to my place?
13: I mean, it's two or three in the morning, they're wasted, they think that it's okay.
10: Oh yeah, pull your tits out, baby!
13: Or men pouring drinks down my top, kind of thing. And that's the thing. Depending on the
7: context, the way women are treated by men is so often readily dismissed, if not accepted. But being on the receiving end is so incredibly violating. should never be allowed to happen.
13: When society is less judgy, when we have less people that have never encountered sex work telling sex workers how they can and can't live their life, then sex workers will feel more like we can stand up for what we deserve in our jobs. The biggest hurdle is just the stigma and the way that people that, you know, if you you don't want to do sex work then don't do sex work. Don't stop somebody else from doing it just because you assume because you don't want to do it that it would suck.
7: Women today are way more empowered than they were a century ago. Yet, we're still held accountable for every decision we make when it comes to our bodies. And even the fact that we had to disguise Zelda and Franco's voices, well what does that say about how far we've come?
6: Even in my time when the Overhang of those bad days was their worldly wise mothers, who saw no prospect of a career for their daughters except marriage, used to train their daughters with one object only, that of pleasing and attracting men.
0: I argue in the book that we're all taught to be obsessed with being thin, that what we're actually pursuing is submission. Virgie Tovar is an
7: American author and has just released a book called You Have the Right to Remain Fat. It looks at the cultural and social boundaries of the female body.
0: That thinness is a secondary characteristic. What's actually being rewarded socially is women's submission. Um, I mean, there's plenty of people who would argue that uh, both men and women create and perpetuate um, ideas of the beauty ideal. History would certainly, I think, support me in saying um, that it's largely been uh, men of influence who have an enormous impact on what um, women look like and sort of what, what women are expected to act like.
7: And these roles are pervasive, which makes it so challenging for women today.
0: That It's often women who become the agents of those ideas. It's the mothers and the aunties and, and these older women you know, who teach the younger generation these kinds of expectations. Um, As much as we'd like to believe that we are intrinsically or naturally attracted to the people we're attracted to, the truth is there's an enormous social education to attraction. We are taught who is attractive. We are taught what is attractive. And I mean, you can see the truth of this in the relative, like the relativism of beauty in different parts of the world. For instance, I mean, in the book, I talk about this, like communities of of people in Mauritania and Niger, where largeness is the ideal in femininity. And women, young women especially, go to extraordinary lengths to be as fat as possible. Sometimes even, you know... Force feed? Yes, for being forced fat or consuming um, weight gaining medications that were designed for animals. Some of the older women who are sort of experts at fattening, they get kind of this extra commission if they can like develop stretch marks on the arms of the women they've been fattening, and that's considered like the absolute height of marriageability. But also, it shows that these women and girls are suffering in order to maintain some kind of ideal that is meant to make them more marriageable. And I think the truth is like what you're talking about with the reduction of a woman to simply what she looks like. This is sexism to the core. This is, women are consistently denied access to that and expressions of that all the time.
14: The patriarchal system and where we're in is that women are valued based on what they look like rather than their work that they do and the the value that they have as a person. And that's so out of date. Hi, I'm Britt Cosgrove. And I'm Johanna Cosgrove.
7: And together they run clothing label, Nope Sisters, which they describe as fashion for a cause.
14: It's a reclamation. Like if you wear something on your body, there it's on the outside of you. People can see it. People engage with you.
7: And the first T-shirt they sold had a mastectomy scar on one side and the outline of a breast on the other. The idea came about when their mum had breast cancer. It's
14: kind of the power of the T-shirts is that it starts those conversations and supports, financially, um, charities that are on the ground and doing the work.
7: Britt and Johanna are in their mid-twenties, and like other young women, they're aware of their rights and have ownership over their bodies. Their notebook brand is about creating awareness and making women's issues visible.
14: It's practicality and activism.
7: You could say it's their way of being political about the female body. The label has a streetwear vibe. They design a range of t-shirts and hoodies with embroidered slogans on them. For instance, one reads nope, another says period.
11: I remember being in high school and being like so embarrassed to say the word period or so embarrassed to ask for a tampon just sort of had to always pretend like it it's, happening it's never happening mm-hmm. and being so embarrassed and and ashamed
7: and this is a part of the story that still leaves me gobsmacked
11: one time i was at work and i was so embarrassed to say to my employer that i had my period and i was like can i go to the bathroom and he's like no 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 it's too busy and so i literally like Bled through my jeans, and then I just ran out of work, and then they got so mad at me, and then I had to be like, "Oh my god, I had my period and I bled through my jeans because like you, we were too busy and you didn't let me go to the bathroom." I mean, and what they, kind of job was this? Oh my god, it was hospital, hospitality. But also, it was in Australia. It was in Australia. It was in
7: Sydney. Shouldn't we have moved past this point? Why should a woman have to explain what's happening to her body? Why is there still so much shame attached to something? That's so normal.
14: But stuff like that happens all the time. And, like, when we released the period shirt, that was the same time that that 10-year-old girl was excluded from school because she got her period really early. How old was she? She, she was 10. And the school didn't want to put a sanitary bin in the toilets, yeah. so they just sent her home. They were
11: like, why don't they, Why don't you just put her on yeah. the pill? And her parents were like, absolutely not. She's 10 years old. Why can't you just put a sanitary bin in the And the toilets.
7: And that begs the question who reserves the right to make decisions over our bodies, and why is it that how they function continues to be dismissed? And let's not forget the double standards too. Who is making the rules here, and what about when it comes to sexual harassment? How prolific is it, and why is it happening?
14: I don't know any one of my friends personally who hasn't experienced some form of harassment, whether it be a catcall on the street to a sexual assault.
7: But is a catcall kind of relatively harmless, would you say?
14: I don't think so, because if you're walking down the street, you have the right to not have other people comment on your body. And that reduces you to your image.
7: Even as a kid, I remember being stalked. I was 11 years old. Okay, it sounds kind of harmless, but I vividly remember when a boy in my class pinned me against the wall with the legs of a chair. He'd chase me around the schoolyard and try and touch me. He even waited outside my house. I was too embarrassed to tell my parents, and any attempt to get attention from the teachers just fell on deaf ears. I had nightmares about this kid until I started high school. This is what it means to be female.
11: They teach us self-defence at high school. Mm. But in the boys' schools, they don't teach them not to rape people.
7: And if women have been subjected to harassment and sexual violence for more than a century, then what's it going to take to implement any change at all, when the way women are objectified continues to be an accepted part of our cultural makeup. Digging a little deeper into what it means to be a woman, I wanted to speak to Rachel Stewart, I was inspired by her writing. She's an award-winning columnist for The Herald, her work is hard-hitting, funny and political. She's not afraid to speak her mind. She grew up on a farm and was never treated differently because she was a girl. And my first question to her is, what does it mean to be a real woman today?
8: To me, a real woman is someone who just doesn't follow the herd, I guess. That's true for men too, of course. Yeah, just someone who's really confident in in liking different things and having different viewpoints, and it's just being yourself. But we still can't get away from the fact that we're physically different. Women have been humanised by the experience that we do breed, that we can have children, that we do lactate, that we do love our children in a way that only mothers can. So I guess that's changed us, and it changes the way that men look at us too, and they can totally, utterly respect us for that difference, or they can totally try and control that difference.
7: Rachel isn't afraid to tackle issues that are often confronting. she's even received death threats on social media, but now they just roll off her
8: back. I'm old school about like domestic violence. I wrote a column about it, but I'm a great believer that if you want men to not beat up women and children, other men need to intervene. Rachel's
7: seen a lot, and that includes witnessing her mum and the repeated physical violence that shes suffered. Where have you been? You should be here when I get home. Rachel was in her mid-teens, living in the US with her mother and stepfather over the course of three or four years. It came to the point where Rachel couldn't handle it anymore. And like Angela,
8: who you heard earlier, Rachel unleashed. I just said to him, if you ever touch my mother again, I'll kill you. And I meant it. Yeah, I just had enough. And my stepfather was drunk enough that he was easy enough to sort of tip over and... You know, he never hit her again. Can I ask you how you broke his ribs? He was down and I just kicked him in the chest. I mean, I didn't know it was that hard, but it was like, I just don't hit my mother. You know, any child really in their right mind would do that if they could. Women in our past faced the same issues and
7: drinking culture was one of the contributors. One of the problems is that women don't report it, almost as if it's something they've come to accept and that just shouldn't be the case.
8: Fortunately, he was drunk. I mean, if he wasn't, he would have got up and... Hit you as well? He'd try to.
7: What would be your mother's response when this was happening over a period of time?
8: Would she talk to you about it? Well, it was hard to ignore because it would happen kind of on a monthly basis. It was almost around the full moon. I can't explain it. Apparently that is a phenomenon. He'd start drinking bourbon. And, and so once a month he'd sort of there'd be this fight breakout. He'd pick a fight. And then within half an hour, an hour of arguing, I'd go to my bedroom and put a pillow over my head so I didn't have to hear it. And then within an hour I'd be hitting her and I'd have to go out there and I called the cops heaps of times. and So I took it upon myself to hurt him and he had to take two months off work for Broken Ribs, told work that he fell off a ladder, lied about that. They all just believed him. My mother didn't want people to know. I remember my brother saying to me, oh, mum rang and told me about that incident. You're making it up. So mum actually betrayed me in the process.
7: Domestic violence is complex and so often hidden, and more often than not, the people inside it also pretend that it isn't happening.
8: I hate domestic violence. I'm I abhor it. And any man that threatens woman, I intervene. I've done it before. I did it I did it growing up. I did it on the streets of Wanganui when a guy um, was kicking his pregnant girlfriend, I intervened, got an absolute shiner for it. It could have been a lot worse. But I wasn't gonna stand there and do nothing. Everybody else was standing there doing nothing, including men. Well, why
7: do they not want to intervene? It's
8: boys looking after boys. It's like I don't want to get involved, and he's a bro, and you know he's, and maybe she's annoying the shit out of him, and maybe it's terrible, and maybe she deserves it. There's still part of that going on, but certainly a lot of men think, well, she was probably nagging the hell out of him, or she was, maybe she slept with his best mate. I've seen it rurally for years. It's really common in rural um, areas domestic violence, but it's not spoken about because the stresses in rural farming life are huge and I've not seen it always in domestic violence it can just be a man acting badly or saying the wrong thing to a woman in the pub and other men just either join in or just let it happen and they could be really nice guys they could even be calling themselves feminists Rachel thinks things will change one day but what's it going to take when women rise up we are so powerful and there will be a point, and soon, where women will say enough is enough. I just don't know when, what and when it will be.
7: Because women can kick ass, like my favourite movie character as a kid, from the kung fu movie Lady Whirlwind. I came here to gamble. I didn't come to fight. Hmm. Trying to cheat. Like Touching the name suggests, she was fast, agile, and could take a legion of men down. She even used her long plait as one of her weapons. Thank you, incredible fight choreography, she was my hero. On this note, I want to delve a bit deeper into women and physicality. Let's talk about sports.
15: Football was my game. Cricket was was my number one game. Uh, and again, I wore shorts, pants. But women used to play in skirts and collots with cricket. But, you know, when you're wearing something like that, you can injure yourself quite badly.
7: Meet Zoe George. She's a presenter and producer of sports podcast Fair Play. She's worked for Cricket NZ and has also managed an international women's cricket team in Japan.
15: I was on a plane one day with my then partner and I was in the middle, and I was sitting next to this guy, and he asked me what I did, and I was like, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm a music journalist and a sports journalist, and he's like, I'd watch more women's cricket if they wore skirts, and it's because these women don't conform to what the men want them to conform to.
7: And what men want, it seems, is to enjoy female sports where women play out their sexuality, which seems to me, beside the point...
15: When it comes to men and women in sport, sport is a traditional masculine pursuit. It was created by men for men's interests. And so when you get women uh, in that environment, if they wear clothes that are associated with men, then they get labelled a particular way, lesbian or butch, yeah, tomboy, um, not conforming to traditional heterosexual uh, femininity.
10: Last night
8: you uh, tweeted that you love Serena's outfit, obviously the fluoro is working for you girls at the moment, she was kind enough to give us a twirl, can you give us a twirl and tell us about your outfit? A twirl? Like... A twirl, a pirouette, here we this go.
7: This is tennis player Eugenie Beauchard at the Australian Open.
15: And I have to say, I honestly think Serena's outfit.
7: And what's so wrong with this picture is that a man would never be asked to do the same thing. Yet women are paraded around like ballerinas in a jewellery box.
15: You know, I think it's a really interesting discussion to have about function versus sexuality when it comes to women and sports uniforms. I've played tennis, I've played netball, there is something quite functional about wearing a skirt. Uh, But then if you look at some of the media coverage of women who wear skirts when they play sport, a lot of the times, if you look at particularly the newspaper when they're following netball, it's upskirt shots. Sports newsrooms are still dominated by men and if you notice they cover sports that are traditionally netball, hockey or or tennis or maybe beach volleyball because it's for their interests. You know the way that we think about sport and engage with sport is changing a lot. We're seeing more women not only participating in sport, but also going to international sporting events. We're seeing uh, our top women's teams absolutely kicking butt on the world stage. You know, our women's sevens has just won the World Cup, uh, so it's a big deal. And we're finding more people are engaging in women's sport because we're taking the focus now away from what they look like and what their sexuality is, and we are focusing on their athletic ability, which is what we should be focusing on to start with. And what we're finding now is that women and other minorities are the fastest-growing audience and participants in sport.
7: And while that's good news, there's a downside too, which brings us full circle to the public toilet issue. Zoe attended a cricket game last year where 40% of the spectators were women, yet they just weren't catered for.
15: Well, there are... Twice as many male toilets as there are women. A group of us waited 25 minutes to use the toilet at the Basin Reserve and then we started using the men's toilets and got told off. But they don't cater for women, they don't cater for families and they don't cater for those with disabilities.
7: It feels like some things have barely changed. I mean, even since Kate Shepard's time, others dictated how women and girls should behave, what they should look like, how they're meant to express themselves. We're stuck in a time where you're just damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Back to Angela Dravid.
3: It's probably overwhelming for a man to see just how much a woman thinks about things before she makes an action. So it'll probably take a little bit of time for a man to adjust to what women are facing every day. We're all empty bottles, and I sort of feel like women have this empty bottle, but then it starts getting loaded with um, guilt, with expectation, with this double standard, and it's just like the bottle just gets filled up quicker and quicker women can get overloaded because they're trying to do so much and trying to please everyone else that their whole perspective on their own life gets overwhelmed
7: you've been listening to beyond kate special thanks to to papa natonga sound and vision and archives new zealand the 1893 Women's Suffrage Petition is housed at Tohu, the National Library of New Zealand. Thanks also to Jude Walcott, Justin Gregory, Tutarangi, William Pladell, and Brandon Mickle. The studio engineer for this episode was Mark Chesterman. The dialogue coach for the series and podcast team is Adam McCauley and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. And I'm your host and producer, Sonia Sly. Next time on Beyond Kate, an exploration of Māori suffragists and looking at diversity and the challenges for women in New Zealand today. Now, if you'd like to subscribe or you haven't already, you can head to Apple Podcasts, Podbeam, Stitcher, Radio Public or wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you soon.